This week on the Off the Crossbar podcast, history is made twice at the Minto Cup. The road to the Man Cup is in full swing. The Founders Cup crowns a champion. Major League Lacrosse champions were soaking wet. And one of the all-time greatest coaches stops by for an in-depth chat. All that and more on OTCB. I am an outlaw. Happy Tuesday, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Off the Crossbar podcast here on SoundCloud and NLL Radio. Thank you for stopping by and joining me for another week of talking all things lacrosse and as many things as we can get into. My name is Teddy Jenner. Thank you for sitting in with me. You can find me on Twitter at Off the Crossbar or you can email me teddy.jenner at gmail.com and... Off the top of the show, I said. We have one of the greatest lacrosse minds of our generation and probably all time stopping by and joining us. And it's going to take up a chunk of this show and we're going to play it in its entirety. But first, we got to get some things out of the way because I I don't want to leave him till the end, but I want to get all this stuff out of the way so we can just enjoy our conversation and let you enjoy the conversation as well. Uh, as mentioned, uh, history at the Minto, the Road to the Man Cup is underway, the Founders get a champion, MLL gets a champion, uh, the President's Cup is starting in a few days. This is one of the greatest times in all of lacrosse right now when we have so many championships being won and so many teams battling for the right to host those championship trophies that sometimes we get some really, really cool storylines. Back east in Orangeville at the Founders Cup, the Junior B Northman knocked off the Green Gales for the Founders Trophy. Uh, it was a remarkable game and a really well-played game. Uh, the Green Gales jumped out to a quick lead only to have the Northman kind of battle back and then just kind of use the energy from the crowd uh, to push to a victory and win on home floor. And the thing that I noticed most about that game and this speaks volume for the Junior B circuit in Ontario and is a great look at, you know, what it can be if Junior B lacrosse is done right. Was the fact that there was more people at that game than probably most of the Junior A games out here combined. Might be an exaggeration, but... It was standing room only for a Junior B National Championship game. Now, obviously, having two hometownish teams playing in the final would get you there. You know, if it was Coquitlam and New West or Delta or whoever it may be, if it was two BC teams in the final for the Minto, obviously you're going to get a pretty decent-sized crowd. Um, or if it's whatever trophy you're playing for, if it's two hometown teams, the crowd will be that much bigger. But this is Junior B we're talking about. You can't get 30 fans out to some Junior B games. And yet, it was sold out. Like, when you watch the camera angles, the one side where the cameras are was seating, and it was full to the brim. And then it was, you know, shoulder to shoulder all along the rest of the rink, and it was three to four people deep. 
It was incredible to see. And that's what lacrosse needs to be, especially for championships. But Junior B lacrosse especially because it is an incredible breeding ground for unreal talent. And the reason Junior B is so successful in Ontario, one of the reasons, is they have five years of junior. And for some reason, we still can't figure that out on the West Coast. We still have two years of intermediate and three years of junior. The junior B lacrosse out here isn't that great. But if we had five years and kids who are 17 and 18 could play junior lacrosse if they were good enough, get more kids playing junior, more kids playing junior B lacrosse, improve on the junior B lacrosse so that when we do send teams for founders, and this isn't a, a slight against Coquitlam, that we don't have to send the team that actually didn't win the BC League and let them go and be a bit of an all-star team and pick up players from around the BC province. Because that's what Coquitlam did. Coquitlam didn't win the Junior B crown, but they were the team that went to the founders, and they picked up guys from elsewhere in the province. But in Ontario, with five years of junior, they have a very, obviously, an incredibly competitive junior A, a very competitive junior B, and even the junior C is pretty good. It's a bit of a drop, but at least they have kids playing junior C lacrosse. We struggle to get kids to play junior B out here. I'm moving away from the point. The point was that it was an incredible scene in Orangeville. And I know Teeter and Suits and Rosie and, and Looney and all those alumni were there supporting the Hornheads. And Bruce Codd was on the bench and Flip Sanderson was on the bench. It was a great coaching staff and shout out to all those guys and everybody in the Northman Uni for capturing the Junior B crown. Because that's a pretty cool trophy. You know, people always focus on the Minto. But Founders is, is a pretty special trophy to win. So shout out to all the Hornheads and everybody on the Orangeville Northman Junior B Club for winning the Founders Cup on their home floor. Their first one in a while. And it was a really well-played game. Uh, I enjoyed watching it. Uh, the crew from JVI did a great job with their coverage. Um, and uh, they'll do an even better job now that they have some coverage of the Major Series Lacrosse Final. As they get set to play Game 2 tonight. Uh, it's just, as I'm recording this, just about to get underway. But they played Game 1 two nights ago. And uh, if you were unaware of what happened, let's just quickly fast forward. It went to double overtime. Tied at 11. Six Nations has the ball. Frag point. Tries to find Stotts. That's picked off as Courier has it. Zach Courier. Up to Jones. He's got room. Shoots and scores! Adam Jones with the sock trickle. And the Lakers take game one in overtime. That was Scott Arnold with the call on TV Kojiko. Uh, highlights are up on YouTube of that whole game. If you go to uh, CTV Kojiko, Peterborough, Lindsay at their channel, um, on YouTube, you can find the whole highlights, uh, 11 plus almost 12 minutes of highlights from that incredible 12-11 double OT goal with the Adam Jones scoring from his office just outside the dotted line, beating his Colorado teammate 
Dylan Ward for the OT, double OT winner, his sixth of the night, giving Peterborough a one nothing series lead over Six Nations in the MSL final. Obviously, the winner of that series will host the Man Cup, and it should be a beauty. As mentioned, um, JVI has gotten some outside sponsorship from a few people, so they will actually be able to broadcast the next couple games of the MSL Finals. Uh, so that's good for everybody. You can go onto the JVI page on YouTube, and they'll be broadcasting tonight's game. Um, it's called uh, CT Pit Stop Peterborough. They're the group that uh, Canadian Tire, that's what CT stands for. Uh, they're the group that are sponsoring uh, the ability for JVI to broadcast this game. So uh, if you go onto YouTube, find JVI Video or JVI Productions, uh, and you'll be able to watch the game live there. And it's currently on now, so probably by the time you listen to this, the game's probably over. But you never know. You never know. Maybe you are listening to this and the game at the same time. Stranger things have happened. Who will they face is the next question. Well, we're going to find out in just over a week's time, I imagine, uh, the Victoria Shamrocks finally, finally, put away the Burnaby Lakers in a thrilling seven-game series. Victoria was up three games to none. Then they were decimated with injuries, only to then have Burnaby club their way back. They had their own injuries to deal with. and actually worked out in their favor. And they won three straight to force game seven. And they almost, almost pulled it off. Only one team had come back from down 3-0 to win a series in seven games. That was back in 1980, and Burnaby almost pulled it off. Would have been, you know, as a Shamrock guy, I would have hated to have seen it, but it would have been pretty cool and a good storyline for the WLA if the finals was Burnaby and Maple Ridge, two teams that I don't believe have ever been to a Man Cup least in my recent memory. The Berards went when they were the Vancouver Berards, but I don't think Burnaby has ever been to a Man Cup. And as Maple Ridge, they've definitely never been to a Man Cup. But Maple Ridge has been to the finals before, most recently in 2014, when they lost the Victoria Shamrocks four games to one. But it'll be a rematch of that series with the winner heading back east to face either Peterborough or Six Nations. Maple Ridge dispatched of New West in five games. And, you know, you ask anybody in that Maple Ridge locker room, they weren't surprised with the outcome. But safe bet. Sorry, Mr. Lance Andre. It's a safe bet that nobody, nobody thought Maple Ridge was going to win that series in five. And if you did, kudos to you. But I don't think anybody saw that series going that quickly. But... This Berards team is a very good team. And they'll push Victoria to the limit. And they can easily win this series. There's By no means am I counting Maple Ridge out because they're a very, very good lacrosse club. And they are fairly healthy. Um, they still are without Creighton Reed, who was hurt way back earlier in the season on a hit from Matt Beers that kind of started this whole Berard Street bully thing. That was the game where Daniel Amesbury kind of went off and everything kind of set off. That's where the surety bond, that was the game where that all kind of started from. 
So Creighton Reed's been out since then, and there's no real signs to pointing to him to come back anytime soon, which is unfortunate because he is a fantastic lacrosse player and would be a benefit to that back end and their transition game. Riley Lowen was taken off the floor late in Game 5, uh, or in Game 5, and there is no real update on him. I've heard conflicting reports, but let's just go and say that he's day-to-day. Um, Mike Mallory didn't finish Game 5 either, but it sounds like he should be able to go. Victoria, of course, uh, will be without Jesse King. They'll be without Ian McShane. Those are, those are two huge Huge losses for the Victoria Shamrocks. But they've inserted some young kids. Uh, junior A calls, Braylon Lum, Marshall King, uh, Cole Pickup have all got in. Zach Christensen played uh, in Game 7 as Victoria was is still down a couple D guys and Josh Fagan and Doug Langlois. They're going to be game-time decisions for Game 1 on Wednesday. So it's going to be a very interesting series between these two clubs. Victoria took the season series Two games to one, and they had some pretty good success scoring on Frankie Shiliano. Um, they scored 10, 12, and 14 goals in those three games. And if they can get inside, if they can they can rattle Frankie a little bit and get some goals on him, they can have some success. But if they're just going to flog away from the outside, it's going to be a long series for Victoria because the Berard's defense will make them pay. They'll be in their face all series long from the opening whistle. You can expect heavy doses of Kevin Reed, heavy doses of Dane Michaud, heavy doses of Daniel Amesbury. And if it goes that route, Victoria has the option of putting George Westwood in. I don't think they will because then it just kind of takes a body out of the lineup. I I love Georgie. Uh, He was a teammate of mine. I think he's an incredible team guy. But when you're playing a lacrosse series, if you're going to have a guy that you know, it was only really out there for a couple reasons. Uh, you better make sure he does his job properly. I like George. I do. And he can score some, he's scored some pretty big goals, you know, when he's needed to, banging and crashing, setting picks. That's what he does. But he's got to be able to keep his head about him and not come steaming off the bench and barrel over a guy and take penalties. Kind of like Daniel Amesbury. He can't be a loose cannon. He's not going to go score goals, but Sato puts him out for a pretty regular D shift and has faith in him. And if he's going to put that faith in him, he can't be taking penalties. So it's going to be very interesting to see how that series plays out starting Wednesday, game one. I'll have the call from the Q Center. You can watch it via pay per view on playfullscreen.com. It's seven games. They'll go every other night, uh, they'll play back to back games four and five. Um, but this series will stretch right into uh, the first week of September, and if it goes seven, man, it's going to be a short rest before those guys have to, whoever it is, has to go back east and take on take the Man Cup on and represent the West, and they can only hope that Six Nations and Peterborough go seven so that they're kind of in the same boat, and obviously Six Nations is without two key contributors Two key lefties in Cody Jamison and Jordan Durston, who are both reportedly out with, let's call it low body injuries, but for all accounts purposes, we've been told they're knee injuries. So it's just a crazy time in the crossroad with guys going down with injuries. Um, 
and opening doors for for young kids to come up. Austin Stotts has played a few games for the Nations. Um, as mentioned, some of the juniors that are getting some lineup shots with the Victoria Shamrocks. And you got to have those guys. You got to have that depth if you're going to be successful in a run to the Man Cup. That's where teams win when they need to is with that depth. And Victoria Victoria has depth. That's the one thing they really do go do have going for them. Like even with McShane and King out, they still have Dutch, Small, Shatler, and Conway out the front door. Like that's incredible to still have that amount of talent. And Corey Conway missed games four and five with an upper body injury after a hit from Matt Beers into the boards in game three. And then in game six and seven, he puts up 15 points in two games. It would have put him third, tied for third on Maple Ridge in the playoffs, and they only played five games. That's how good Corey Conway's playing right now. But the Brards are playing some decent lacrosse. They, like, As I mentioned, they put away New West in five games. Nobody, nobody really saw that coming. So they're rested. They'll have had a week off. Victoria's only had a couple days off. They played Sunday. So game one, Wednesday night, 7.45 p.m. Pacific time. You can hear that call on play full screen. Now to the history, and this is some really important stuff that we have to get to here. History was made twice at the Minto Cup this week. And it started on opening night. Coquitlam and Orangeville played in a fantastic tournament opener. Got the buzz going. Got this kind of the vibe in the LEC rocking. Everybody's excited and Coquitlam won. And, you know, everyone's all, oh, maybe Coquitlam's got it. Maybe we're going to have an all-BC final. And then the shocker. As the Calgary Mountaineers put an absolute beating on Delta. And for the first time since 1979, an Alberta team beat a team other than an Alberta team in a Minto Cup. And it set the whole tournament abuzz. And it turned everything upside down. And then, and then, they lose to Coquitlam the next night, and then they take on Orangeville. And some people will say, so let's kind of set the scene. Um, By the time we had gotten to the third day, remember, they're playing, they had played pretty much every day straight. So by the time we had gotten to day three, we already knew who the three teams moving on was going to be. Coquitlam was 2-0. They were already into the finals. They were getting the bye. Delta was out as they had lost back-to-back games. They lost to Calgary, then they lost to Orangeville. So they were out. And so that leaves us with Calgary and Orangeville sitting on one-and-one records, having both beaten Delta, and setting up the day three matchup between Calgary and Orangeville. And the Mountaineers beat the Northmen. Like, what is going on? 
In the span of three days, the Calgary Mountaineers had beaten both the BC champs and the Ontario champs. And what it does is it sets up tonight's semifinal between Calgary and Orangeville. The winner goes to the final to take on Coquitlam. Now, imagine for a second if Calgary is able to pull it off again and beat Orangeville. They'll become the first Alberta team ever to go to a Minto Cup final. And they'll play Coquitlam in a best of five over the course of five straight days with a chance to win a Minto Cup. Can you believe it? Now, Coquitlam did rest a few bodies against Delta in Game 3. No real surprise there. They didn't really need to dress a full lineup. They were already on to the finals. Might as well rest some bodies, give some guys some rest. But man, Calgary could be in a Minto final, and it will set the lacrosse world ablaze if that happens. Because all this talk of Alberta's not ready, Alberta shouldn't be in the Minto, they need to earn their way in through another round robin or another round of games, whether it be a Western final or whatever it may be. This Calgary Mountaineers club, coached by Joe Vitri, a a former uh, Burnaby junior, he has them playing some incredible lacrosse. And I believe it's a predominantly all-Alberta team. They don't have any imports. They didn't pick anybody up. They didn't go and and poach from BC or Ontario or Saskatchewan or wherever they could. They didn't do that. They have built a local product of Alberta kids and are having incredible success. And so for all the naysayers that say Alberta doesn't belong and that the gap is still too wide for them to compete, Exhibit A, the Calgary Mountaineers. Phenomenal. And as much as I'm a big Northman supporter, just mostly because I love the logo, and they don't have a senior team that I hate, so I kind of lend myself to them, I would love to see Calgary pull it off. I would love it. Because in a five-game series, you never know what could happen. Now, Calgary played Coquitlam pretty close for half of a game, and then the Adnecks were like, uh, no, this isn't going to happen, and found fifth gear and ended up scoring like seven straight to blow that game wide open. But I think Calgary have learned from a lot, uh, learned a lot from that game. And they'll go in, they obviously have to get through Orangeville tonight, which is no easy task. And the Northmen dressed a pretty full lineup when they played last night. Um, They rested a couple bodies, as I'm sure Calgary probably did. And both teams will have watched game tape and picked up some nuances and little things that they can fix or, or exploit. But let me tell you, 
That is going to be one heck of a game, and I, I just, I'm just sitting here imagining what it's going to look like if there isn't an Ontario team in a Minto Cup final. That has never happened ever. Just think about that. There's never not been an Ontario team in a Minto Cup, and it could happen. We could be seeing another piece of history made from this Calgary Mountaineer squad. And it's just absolutely phenomenal. I am I'm overjoyed by this possibility because it just it, it's such an incredible thing for all those people who are putting in the work in Alberta to get them on par with everybody else in the country. So, if you can, once you're done listening to this, because I'm hoping this will be up before that game starts, go to the Langley Event Center website or tfse.ca, um, look up 10 Feet Sports Entertainment videos, and, and you'll be able to find the stream. Eight bucks, watch the game, and you could be seeing some fantastic history in the making. One last point of note before we get to our very esteemed and special guest. Um, Saturday was an incredible night uh, for sports and memories and history around the world. Um, obviously, it was the opening day of the Minto Cup, and we just talked about what happened there. Uh, pretty much everybody in Canada that wasn't watching the Minto Cup, or maybe doing the double, uh, watching the Minto Cup and watching the historic final showing of the Tragically Hip, and if you didn't, I really apologize, because it was the greatest thing I've ever seen on TV. But there was another significant lacrosse game going on Saturday, and that was the Major League Lacrosse Final between Denver and Ohio. And I didn't get to see it because I don't get CBS Sports Net up here. Uh, my cable provider doesn't have that channel, so I couldn't watch it. So I was relying solely on Twitter, on all the guys that uh, do an incredible job tweeting out um, information about what's going on down there and, and you know, giving good insights onto what it was happening. And it was just a crazy game. Ohio got out to the lead. Uh, Denver started coming back. Ohio had to lead again. And then the heavens opened up and we had a torrential downpour that flooded the field. And a lot of people didn't think they were even going to finish that game. Somehow they did. They were able to outlast the storm. Got a couple squeegees out there and moved as many of the puddles out of the way as they could. And then the outlaws just slowly started to come back and come back and come back and come back. And next thing you know, it's tied. And we're in the last minute of play. And possession's going back and forth. Both teams have chances. And then it was all up to the Denver Outlaws, who had possession the last possession pretty much of the game with 20 seconds or so left. And it's a pass that coaches hate 
and I'm sure the Denver Outlaw coaches were dreading this pass being made from Jeremy Sieverts, but in the end, it paid off. Went in here for Denver. Shovels back to Sieverts. Fakes in front. Law shoots, he scores! Eric Law scores for Denver! With 12.9 to go in regulation, the Outlaws have taken the 1918 lead. And that goal would be your championship winner, giving the Denver Outlaws their second Steinfeld Cup. And it was just an incredible game. I wanted Ohio to win for my boy John Grant, who's just been through so much. It would have been an incredible way for him to end his year. Uh, crazy to think that when Denver was 2-6, and six, they traded Junior to Ohio. And then they meet in the finals. And Junior's old team gets the better of him one last time. And what will go down as one of the greatest MLL championship games in history. Because it was just that good of a game. Uh, Ohio had a lead 14-7 at half. Denver outscored Ohio 8-1 in the third quarter to tie it at 15 going into the fourth. It was just phenomenal. I, I I, I wish I can go back, could go back and watch that game, and hopefully one day somebody will put it on YouTube or something like that, and I will be able to go back and watch it because it was just an incredible, an incredible performance by everybody. Um, and the fact that they got that game in and, and didn't say, you know what, we'll come back tomorrow and finish it because if that would have happened, who knows what the outcome would have been. All right. Now it is time. And... Let me give you a bit of um, some backstory on this. Uh, I have been a fan of Bill Tierney's for as long as I've been able to see college lacrosse on ABC's Wild, Wide World of Sports when I was a kid. Um, when I first saw Coach Tierney, it was when he was with the Princeton Tigers, and they were just an incredibly dominant performance. But one of the things I loved about uh, Coach Tierney was he respected the game so much that, and he understood lacrosse so well that he would never try and embarrass teams or run the scores up on teams. He wanted his teams to be perfectionists. He wanted his teams to go out and just dominate games, but he was never about making his team look better than anybody else. You know, he never would run up scores just to prove a point. I always heard the story that, you know, when his team got to 19 goals, they had to move the ball around. He didn't really want to put up 20 on a team unless he had to. And then, of course, you know, after his tenure in with Princeton, he made the move that kind of shocked the entire lacrosse world and went to Denver to help that program become the pioneers, pun intended, of the West that they were and that they wanted to be and that they have been. And when he came from Princeton, he brought his son Trevor with him. Uh, he was able to bring on Matt Brown, which we're going to get into with him. Um, and he just, his stock continued to rise with me. And I had never met Coach Tierney, um, never even seen him in person. Up until we were at the U.S. Box of Nationals a couple weeks ago in San Jose, and... 
it was kind of weird moment, and this is a true story. Um, it was a fanboy moment for me. Because he was such an icon, I really had a tough time talking to him. And there was moments where he may not have known it at the time, but he and I were like five feet from each other, not even, both leaning up against the glass watching a game in San Jose. But I just, it was a really weird feeling for me. I couldn't just go and talk to him. I was starstruck. And then the moments that I did talk to him, I called him Bill. And anybody that knows me, I don't like calling, even though I'm an adult, um, I don't like calling people who are older than me by their first names. It's just, it's a sign of respect. I always like to call them sir or mister or use their last name or whatever their nickname may be. I usually don't like to call people by their first names. And I was so dumbfounded by seeing Coach Tierney that, you know, the two times that I actually said things to him in passing, I was like, hey, hey Bill, how are you? Enjoying the weekend? Good. Good to see you. Like, what a dummy, right? Like, I was, and it just sat with me, and it sat with me the whole weekend. I still couldn't get myself to talk to him. So um, I reached out to to Trevor Tierney, his son, and said, hey, man, you got your, you got your dad's email? I'd love to have a chat with him. He's like, yeah, here you go, no problem. And so I emailed Coach Tierney, and, and I I apologized to him, and he humbly said, you know what, you don't have to do that. He, he was he said, don't call me sir. Call me coach, call me Bill, but don't call me sir. So um, I was really relieved to get you know that off my chest and kind of clear the air with him. And, and like I said, I've always admired him, and he's been an incredible advocate for the indoor game um, because he played in like the original NLL in 74-75 with Rochester. And since then, he's been a huge proponent of the game. And I've always wanted to have him on the show to talk about it. And it took this kind of weird exchange that we had at the U.S. Box and Nationals for it to come about. And I'm so thankful, so thankful and honored that he gave us some time. And by time, I mean pretty much an hour. So go get a drink, sit yourself down, kick your feet up, and please enjoy an incredible conversation with one of the greatest coaches this game has ever known from the Denver Pioneers, Coach Bill Tierney. I uh, appreciate you giving us some time. Uh, we kind of caught up a little bit at the U.S. Box and Nationals, but uh, how are things and, and how's your summer going? Well, everything's good. As you know, in, in our uh, profession, it's uh, June and July are crazy. We're out on the road a yeah. lot, uh, you know, watching all these tournaments and everything. But uh, as you mentioned, it was um, – <laughs> a lot of fun to get to the uh, to the box nationals, and we'll talk about that, I'm sure. But uh, it's been a great summer. Spending my last week in August now at uh, our uh, our beach house out in New Jersey, and so uh, it's uh, it's going to end up a, a real good summer. It's been a a great summer. Um, how busy is it really for a for a field coach in the summer? Do you get any time off? We do, you know. It's it's kind of interesting, and you know, maybe a topic for another day. But uh, you know, with the early with the early recruiting now, it's it's kind of changed course a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. But in general, in general, it's um, uh, either you know depends on where you are in college, you know, what your team looks like, where, how you're recruiting, you know, how you want your recruiting to go. Mm-hmm. But you can either go to a lot of these big tournaments or. And you know, kind of sit and watch thousands of kids play, looking for a needle in a haystack, or you can, uh, you know, hone in on the kids that have shown you some interest, uh, or some some sort of combination of, of both. Uh, 
new thing coming into play now is prospect camps on our campuses. So, you know, recruiting always evolves. It always evolves with, you know, whatever the other guys are doing, people try to catch up. And uh, um, you know, the key is to come out with uh, the best possible classes you can uh, for the future of your program. I, I definitely want to have that conversation later about the early recruiting and, and this, that topic of discussion that is in the field across. But we're going to focus a little bit more on the indoor game. And a lot of people don't know that you actually played in one of the early onsets of professional indoor lacrosse after your college career. What do you remember about those days, and how has the game changed from way back then? Well, I'll tell you, Teddy, you know, I, I only played four years of lacrosse in college. That's where I started playing. So I was literally in, in uh, 1974 and 75 with, when the original National Lacrosse League started. Um mm-hmm. You know, each team there were six teams, and they were mostly made up Canadians. And and but they uh, they did what I what I thought was a wise move, but it was certainly great for my life and my career. Was they kind of mandated that each team needed a couple Americans to try to try to spread the game into our country, try to draw more fans because a lot of the teams were in were in the U.S. But for me personally, it just gave me uh, the greatest appreciation for the indoor game. It made me a much better lacrosse player, and uh, and and uh, you know I kind of laugh at it, but but made some of my best friends in life, uh, uh, some guys from north of the border, which is uh, which has been uh, you know lifelong relationships and new ones that go on, uh, yeah. you know. Uh, so it's uh, I, I can honestly say those two years changed my life uh, drastically. I've been a promoter of indoor lacrosse, box lacrosse since then, uh, but of course for 20 years after that, nobody nobody believed me or bought in, but it seems <laughs> like it's happening now. Um, had you seen much box lacrosse before you started playing? No, none at all, and, and it was interesting because when we were, uh, uh, I remember um, specifically, it was a club uh, lacrosse game, the, the guys in the NLL you know, Morley Kells was uh, mm, yeah. uh, was my coach. Great, great name in, in box lacrosse back in the seventies. And uh, Morley and and a bunch of the GMs and coaches came down to Long Island and watched. Uh, I was on the Long Island Lacrosse Club, which back then was the, the you know the biggest and best yeah. uh, lacrosse club in the country. Uh, and uh, we played a game against. Uh, Kobe Lacrosse Club, where my best friend Ray Rosman was playing for them, and I was playing for Long Island. And after the game, they had this meeting in this—it uh, was a high school field—but they had this meeting in like an old boiler room for anybody who might be interested in mm-hmm. pursuing playing lacrosse for the rest of the summer and 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 uh, um, and into you know and, and into the future. And so uh, you know, we at the time we had you know minimal teaching jobs at the time. And so Ray and I were able to, uh, we were drafted by Morley and went up to Rochester and spent that summer of 1974 in Rochester with him. You talk about uh, your advocacy for the indoor game um, and people, you know, who understand what it does for kids development uh, through the ages and helping them become better lacrosse players in general. But what was the one thing that you took away from those days back in the seventies? Like, okay, this is going to be a thing that's going to make people better. Well, it just for me, it was it was clearly the the, the shooting. How do I how do I shoot at a four by four goal uh, around the guy who's six by six? You know? and then, <laughs> yeah. Basically, how I looked at it, I, and uh, you know, learned a lot from the guys that we played with. Some great, great names in, in lacrosse uh, that were on our teams, and 
you know, learned a lot from that guys about moving goalies and, and, and all sorts of stuff. And, uh, it was just, so I think that was the, the biggest thing for me, obviously improving stick skills because the ball stays in, in play all the time, the, mm-hmm. you know, the fast breaks that, and then the fights were pretty cool too. So it was, <laughs> uh, you know, it was a real eye opener for me. Uh, did you ever get in a fight? And it was, was it something that opened your eyes really quickly? Well, I'll tell you, I, I did once. We were playing <laughs> in my second year in 1975. I was with the Long Island Tomahawks, and yeah. we were <clears throat> the Rochester Griffins moved to Long Island the, the second year, and we were in a, and we were playing. Uh, I forget which team we were playing, but uh, one of the Sandersons and I got into a little scuffle, <sighs> scuffle as the ball was moving up the uh, up the up the uh, field and. Uh, um, kind of in the background, so nobody really saw what was going on. And all of a sudden, the refs came back to it and uh, and kind of grabbed both of us. Uh, and and unfortunately for me, the ref that was holding him back uh, lost lost grip of him. So I'm yeah. being held back by a ref as he's pummeling my little face. And so it, was, uh, it wasn't a great it wasn't a great memory. Yeah. It was funny because after the game, the ref came up to me. He goes, you know. Uh, Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, it was a, little late it was a good good memory. He didn't get me too bad. Yeah, so uh, As the the game evolved and it moved on, you know, we have lacrosse indoors and outdoors now, and, and both are gaining mainstream notoriety. But why do you think it's easier to go from indoors to outdoors? Well, you know, going back, it's going back to our first year that we were talking about, Teddy, in 1974. I remember, um, I remember we, we practiced, uh, that our first training camp was in April of 74. And we practiced at Freeport, which is a little town on Long Island on the water, but they had a, uh, they had an ice rink that didn't have ice on it. So that's basically why we used it for our training site. And, uh, I remember, um, we were trying out, a bunch of new American guys because that was actually it was actually seventy five because we had moved to Long Island right. and um, and uh, and I remember you know all these guys going out there all these guys were great players that I had played with in college or knew about in college and we went out went out on the box and and the Canadian guys just riddled us you know just crushed yeah. us and and it was such an eye opener you know I kind of knew the game because I had played a year before right. and so was still was kind of for my own good a front runner there but um but then um our coach Morley who was pretty pretty insightful he said okay this afternoon we're playing a game of field lacrosse because we had a bunch of field guys that were trying out and we went out on the recreational fields of this rec center in Freeport and we just crushed those poor guys (laughs) you know and and so you know they didn't know what a long stick was and you know and it was just it was just and and it was a for me that was the day I really saw that you know uh, wow we can make this thing work with with the, the you know with the skill sets from both of these games and mm-hmm. and it was just so much fun but I, but I think the uh, you know I think the moving from box to field uh, you know as some of the you know since I've been at Denver so many we've had so many great Canadian players play and and really I think for them going back to my original point of shooting is, you know, I I just think it's like for them, they're looking at this, you know, now goalie who has no pads on, you know, probably weighs 160 pounds. And, and the goal is six by six instead of four by four or four by four and a half, depending on which league you played in. And, and, you know, it's, it's like 
throwing a ball in the ocean from the shore. And, and so I, I think the scoring part was was the first thing that, that has made, you know, a, a lot of young Canadian kids come to America to uh, um, to get an education, but also to get yeah. an education when it comes to, to scoring in the game. Now, obviously, it's expanded. You know, you get the Brody Merrills of the world and some of the tough defensemen and, and you know, and uh, even some of the goalies that have played now in the States, and, and you see that it's moved that way. Uh, um, you know, a little harder for the for the U.S. kids to go from the field to the box just because it's so much quicker and, and so much more pressure on you as you catch and shoot the ball, but I'm sure we'll right. talk about that as well. Yeah. Um, I just want to touch on a couple field things that you mentioned that just kind of popped in my head uh, when you were talking about the Long Island Lacrosse Club. Um, we used to have uh, the Victoria Royal Waxman here in Victoria, and they always used to play either Long Island or the New York Athletic Club in the original Brockton Cup. Were you ever a part of any of those series? I was not, no. No. Do you, do you remember the Brockton Cup at all? I, I remember the name of it. You know, what yeah. years would that have been? Uh, that would have been like the – that was Chris Hall's era, so it would have been like late 80s, right. early 90s. Late 80s, right. Yeah, right. late 80s, I do remember 90s. when that got yeah. started. Yep, yep. Um, remember when that got started. Yeah, so that that was always kind of an eye-opener to see Canadians playing sort of a, a field style of lacrosse against American clubs and having some success. And a lot of that was the education that Chris Hall was giving Canadian players. But it started that transition of, you know, that was when the Gates were starting to get in their heyday and Tommy Marichuk and Chris Pratt – and, and those names were starting to go through. But then sure. we kind of moved on uh, to that 98 World Games uh, on Long Island, <laughs> which is arguably in the greatest game that's ever been played. And you were the coach of that team uh, with the USA that won 15-14 and, and a thrilling overtime game. What do you remember most about that light, night in Long Island? <laughs> well, there's so many, so many crazy bad memories <laughs> and good memories all mixed yeah, into that. one. I do remember just uh, I do remember um, saying to my well, you know after the the game ended I remember just saying to my wife let's get out of here I can't be around this anymore because you know we were we were up I think it was twelve to two at one point or something like that yeah and uh, I was actually going to pull Sal Lacasio and put and put uh, uh, Doherty in and we had worked and we had worked during our training camp on a little bit of a a zone defense in case we got a lead, we could kill some time. Uh, you know, an international, you can kill almost as much time as you want. And uh, and I had Doc all warmed up, and I had these guys ready to we're go into a zone and try to run this thing out. And all of a sudden, things started changing and changing, changing yeah. quickly. Um, but, uh, you know, there's so many memories. I, I remember taking a timeout with about three minutes left, and we had a three-goal lead and uh, saying to the team, no more shots. And then, yeah. and we had the ball. We had the ball behind yeah. the goal. It was our last time out. No more shots. Well, within 10 seconds, one of our players took the ball, tried to dive around the crease, got stuffed, right. and then we didn't see it again until it was tied. You know, and, uh, uh, yeah, I remember, uh, you know, all, all these little snippets of, of things happening, uh, the Canadians moving Gary to attack. Right. Uh, and, you know, you talk about names and Gary and Tavares at attack and, uh, yeah. you know, Junior was, was really a junior at the time. He didn't have much impact on that, but he was a guy that we do uh, certainly could, uh, was going to, was going to cause problems for the U.S. in the, in the future. But, you know, uh, I had played with Tommy Fair's dad in the original mm-hmm. box league, so I, I knew some of these guys and, uh, 
it was just an, an onslaught, and uh, it was kind of kind of nothing nothing could stop it. And then uh, I remember in overtime, which is not sudden death, uh, you know, we scored first. And, and I remember at the timeout, Mark Millen and uh, uh, and Darren Lowe both saying to me, "Just get me the ball." Just get mm-hmm. the ball. Yeah. And then, you know, Ryan Wade was actually the guy who came in and saved us because uh, um, Peter Jacobs was our face-off guy, but Peter had uh, – he was from Hopkins, and he – his you know, we had played like, I don't know, you know how that tournament goes. I think mm-hmm. it was like six games in a matter of seven days or something. Yeah. And Peter was a big guy with big trunks of legs, and mm-hmm. he was just shot. He was tired, and uh, – so Ryan Wade came in and took some faceoffs and won a couple there. We got up by two, and then Canada scored one to, for the final score. But um, and Wade and 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 uh, Darren Lowe, you know, both put us on the scoreboard. But there were so many memories of that, and uh, to this day, I've never watched the film of that game. I, <laughs> I never watch I, overtime. I don't watch overtime. I will watch it right up until the end of regulation. I don't want right? to see the end. Yeah, I never watch overtime. <laughs> it's funny. It's funny, but. Uh, it was crazy, crazy night in Baltimore. That's that, cool. that, yeah, absolutely All right. It was Baltimore. I was thinking of the '92 uh, under 19s, and my brother was in, but that was in Baltimore. That's oh, right. um, okay. Yeah, uh, right. Back, back to the indoor game. Um, you're uh, one of the quotes that you have is, you know, any kid that's under 12 should be playing exclusively box. And you're lucky enough uh, to be coaching um, a great young group of kids with the Denver Elite program, uh, run by Maddie Brown and and that whole group. And you have the novices along with Matt's dad, Terry, and you guys do an incredible job with those kids. Why is it so important for you to start the kids so young playing box? Well, you know, Teddy, when I grew up and still to this day, although my baseball friends would argue this, but when I grew up, you know, you you took a kid and you put him out in right field and you hope that the ball never never was hit to him, you know, right. and you, th- yeah. you took the best athlete was the pitcher, the next best athlete was the shortstop, and then you, you kind of fit in between and you hope that your cleanup hitter could hit a home run and you'd win one nothing, and for the rest of the day, everybody else could watch the flowers grow, you know, mm-hmm. and... Uh, and 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 so all of a sudden you get to lacrosse, and I I equate field lacrosse to when when I can, when I learned about box lacrosse and watch good box lacrosse as you know bad box lacrosse can be bad too you know <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. and um, but when I watch good box lacrosse and compared that to field what I what I kept thinking about is here's a poor kid who maybe overthrows a guy and and the ball goes out of bounds and he's He's down in the dumps, and the ball comes back at him, and that guy throws it away. And then we got to run 30 yards, and it's out of bounds again. And meanwhile, you take those same two kids and you put them in box. Guy throws it away. It bounces back in. He doesn't even remember that he threw it away because yeah, yeah, yeah. the action is going on. Uh, he's getting pounded and beat up a little bit, but it's all in fun. And, you know, I think the amazing thing for me is just that the, the learning curve in box. When I first came to Denver, and my son Trevor was my – uh, my first assistant and Matt Brown was my second assistant. You know, we decided at that point we were going to start Denver Elite, and we did. And then um, we had so many kids come out, we felt bad about cutting some kids. Mm-hmm. So at the time, Matt and I had actually Matt had found these three uh, these three rinks that were built out in a, in a rec center that were outdoors, but they were built for um, for inline hockey, which had died a quick death in the states. Mm-hmm. And we said, let's get our hands on these. And we actually started our Denver Elite Box program with the kids that we cut from the field team. 
Awesome. And because we figured we'd improve their skills. And sure enough, within a year or two, those kids have blown by yeah. a lot of the field kids just because of the repetition, the fun, the the fact that their dad wasn't yelling at them because he didn't know anything about the game. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you, you know, it's so fast and, and so much fun. Um, you know, uh, it, it was just, to, to me, it was something that was – wasn't a revelation because I had kind of been, I had seen this in my own life, but it was more of a justification that this is the thing I've been saying since 1990, even the 80s, you know, about when I was in coaching about box lacrosse, over field lacrosse for young kids was kind of coming to fruition. And it, and it you know, just made me believe that what we were talking about is right. Yeah. Um, you were a bit of a yeller as a college coach. How would you have to restrain yep. that? Uh, coaching indoors, with the, especially with the kids, because, you know, I was always an advocate that yelling at kids, you know, doesn't do yeah. anything for anybody. Um, so you've obviously had to tone that down a bit. What's, what's the best part about coaching young kids for you? Is it the smiles well, on the faces? It, Is it the yeah, memories that they build? You know, it's funny. I go back to my box experience. I was never really a yeller until um, in Rochester in 1974. I was, we were playing against uh, – who were we playing then? Maybe Toronto or I remember being a blue team, maybe Maryland. And we're playing in Rochester in War Memorial and I'm on the, on the bench and Morley Kell says, get up to about four of us because we were sitting there. We get up, he takes the bench and throws it over the wall at, at, a, at a referee. And I go, Jesus. <laughs> you know? and, and I think that incited something on me that, that, that maybe uh, – Maybe being a yeller is, is is the way to be effective, but uh, you know, yeah. uh, I, I've I've been apologizing for that that part of me for thirty forty years now, and yeah. it's just uh, nobody's perfect, and and I've tried to be better. But I can tell you, and and I talked to Matt about this, and to his dad Terry after after the nationals a few weeks ago, coaching those little guys. What you realize, number one, is it would be senseless to yell at them because yeah. all they do it, all they would do is cry. But, but when you encourage them and you tell them it's going to be okay, um, you know, in the in the championship game, we we played a group that we had beaten thirteen to three in the first round, and they were up five to two. And our little yeah. goalie is crying and he's going nuts. And and you know, we just I watched Terry go over to him and explain to him that we're going to win and it was going to be okay. And and it, it took it all. It was just so cool to have those kids come off and and high fiving them and smiling mm-hmm. at them and telling them that even though they did something wrong, it was going to be okay. And then watching the team come back and, and and it was a great lesson in life for them. And I said that to them after the game. I said, I don't want any of you guys ever again to be down in the dumps when you're down a few goals. This is a great example for you to. To, to just keep playing, do what you do. But I think the best part you mentioned it is, is the smiles. Absolutely. One of the refs, one of the refs said something to me. Uh, he was a guy, he was a Canadian guy, but he said, uh, he said to me, he goes, I've watched your career forever, and I've never seen you seem to enjoy coaching yeah. as much as you did out yeah. here today. And, yeah. and it's just kind of true. It was very evident to see you and you and Terry, uh, two guys with countless years of lacrosse experience just having fun with this, those young kids and just enjoying yourselves because Denver had eight teams there in a tournament that had you know 60 plus teams from all over North America it was one of the greatest youth tournaments I've ever seen as a guy who's been around lacrosse what do you take away from that weekend in San Jose 
Oh, I, you know, if it, if, you know, to, to me, what it reminded me of is, is I told this to Matt. You know, if you ever, if you ever watch a flower grow from the first thing, you mm. see that little green thing pop out of the soil. That's what yeah. I look at that game. I was at the Nationals not last year, but two years ago. So it must have been 2014 when it was down in Southern California, mm-hmm. and it was really cool. There were three pads, and it was kind of running around and and. You know, I, I watched uh, I watched these guys, um, you know, just trying to coach kids who are just learning the game. You know, Coach Sullivan from Texas and some of these guys, and they were just it was just so cool to watch them. Uh, mm. You know, talk to kids who who are getting their brains beat in, but still having a great time. But uh, you know, so I think that that then two years, just the growth in two years. And and not just the growth in numbers, as you know, as you mentioned, the numbers grew crazily. Yeah. But uh, the skill level, to me, was was really revealing. It was it, I thought it was cool that we had a couple of Canadian teams come down. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because the, the 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 experience of those groups really really helps the other kids as they look. But you know, watching the Seattle team, watching all you know all these teams, uh, and the kids learn how to play the game as as Brownie and Shaden always say the right way yeah. um and, and doing it with 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 high skill and catching balls and tough places last night i I was watching the the, the minto cup game and, mm-hmm. and you know the skill level is just amazing and i watch I'm watching our kids do that so not only growth from a numerical standpoint which is going to take off this is this is we are you know it, I know that you know that that what what we're at right now, you know, will look infantile 15 years from now. But mm-hmm. it's it's going to be the wave of the game, and people are talking about the Olympics being some sort of uh, when they get lacrosse in it, some sort of hybrid of box and field and all that yeah. stuff with smaller numbers. But to me, it was just watching these American kids um, develop this skill set that, that that the Canadian kids have been doing for 100 years. Yeah. Was was pretty cool. I told him. I told Brownie, if this continues, um, they're going to throw him out of car- out of camera to be the next <laughs> Patriot. You know, yeah. <laughs> he and Shaden have been. You know, they're going to be Benedict Arnold from uh, Canadian kids. <laughs> but because, uh, as you know, so many Canadian kids are on scholarships here in the U.S. Yeah. and that's yeah. the, that's the beauty of it all. Yeah. So uh, it's been, it's been it's, it was amazing, and I think we're just at the at the, the ground level of the growth of the game. Absolutely. Uh, I love the fact um, that when I was down there, seeing you know all the Canadian guys coaching um, from from the guys yes. you have there from Link and Shuey and Matty Brown and Johnny Gallant, but then you had you know Shaden and Doyle and Prepchuk and and Roy Colsey's played some time in the NLL, but these yep. Canadian guys that are down in those markets, you know, starting club teams and starting U.S. boxer groups, and it's only going to be better for these kids because they're now learning from guys who played it their whole life. For you, who's who's the responsible responsibility fall on in the U.S.? Is it U.S. Boxla who's done an incredible job for for five or six years, or does U.S. Lacrosse really need to get involved? No, I I, I mean my take on this is it should go with the experts, yeah. and if you know, and the experts are the Canadian guys, and that's where, you know, I mean. Look, Matt Brown is my is my associate head coach at the University of Denver. We wouldn't be, you know, national champs two years ago last year with without Matt Brown and without mm-hmm. some of the Canadian players we have. But um, 
on a grander scale. And what you know, my guess is what Matt Brown's going to go down in history is is yes, he's going to be known as a great Division One lacrosse coach because he'll he'll be the head coach at Denver when I walk away. But he's already been more instrumental than anybody with the with the rise of our program. Yeah. But I really believe that the, that the days you know four or five years ago when he and Shaden started to get this thing going. That that was the beginning of something really really special. Um, I wouldn't want to see you know, uh, you know I I wouldn't want to see U.S. lacrosse get involved in it. Let, let U.S. lacrosse do do lacrosse, you know, do mm-hmm. field lacrosse. Mm-hmm. I think we need to have, um, you know, it, it it'd be just like the, uh, you know, you know I don't know. You can compare it to a thousand different things, but yeah. you know, uh, it, this is a different game, and and it's it's a game that needs to be done by the experts, talked by the experts, until 10, 15, 20 years from now, maybe there's enough American kids that, that know it and do it right, yeah. and uh, and they can start doing that. Just like in Canada now, you're seeing some of the Canadian guys go back, um, you know, and, and, and start these, the, the field lacrosse Absolutely. Uh, club, club teams as well, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, that, and that seems to work well as, as the two mesh, the, the most important thing is going to be that uh, I don't think Canadian field lacrosse in college is ever going to take on uh, the role that it has, field lacrosse has in the United States of being right. one of the major sports at the NCAA level and national championships and, most importantly, uh, means of scholarships for education of young men. It just doesn't work like that in Canada. Yeah. You know? And so I think it will always stay the field game, but – I think the more and more we see box kids coming from both areas, the higher level it's going to become. Uh, some rapid-fire questions here before we let you go, Coach. Um, will lacrosse ever be in the Olympics? Yes, no, no doubt. But as I said, I think it's going to be a little bit of a mix. I think we're going to see uh, a smaller field with yeah. seven a seven on the side or something like that. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they experimented this year with rugby with that, and it was yeah. a, a huge success. Oh, absolutely. Huge success because people, number one, if you're going to do anything in the Olympics, it's got to be TV worthy, you know, and, and lacrosse yeah. won't, get a, won't get a lot of play early in that. So mm. it's got to be fast, you know, whether it's two 15-minute halves with seven on the side and a 30-second shot clock, who knows? But mm-hmm. some version of lacrosse will be because the ILF is doing a uh, or FIL, FIL uh, yeah. you know, yeah. yeah, is doing a, a great job of, of promoting it, and and that's in unison, you know, with the great unity of guys like uh, you know uh, Stan Cockerton and Tom Hayes, mm-hmm. um, you know, pushing this thing and, and spending years on uh, trying to get yeah. it to go. So um, uh, I, I think it will. The the question that that kind of now arises is what do you do if it does get into the Olympics? Is does it seem right to have it in the games and not have the Iroquois involved because they're not recognized? Because that's that's well, a that's, tough thing that people sit with. That's right? a really tough one. It's a yeah. really really tough one. I I I there's no side to take on this because. You know, knowing the Iroquois people and how proud they are, and, and they yeah. have their nation, and they should have the ability to represent their nation. Um, I think the, the sin of it all, the pre-Olympics, is is what is what England is doing to, yeah. to them. You know, I just think it's it's sad. You know, these yeah. are young men that that are born with sticks in their in their hands and, and are 
and are playing the game for all the right reasons and, and it really defines their culture and uh, to not be allowed to play. Sure, people could say, you know, hey, you know, you can get a U.S. passport, you can get a Canadian passport, mm-hmm. get those and then go play. But I think that's an affront to their people. And, yeah, and, uh, and I think that that's, you know, that would be, that would be <laughs> the asterisk that, that would always be next to the Olympic champion. Um, all right. Uh, best player you ever coached? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> now we're getting a really I, tough question. I can't even there go one? there. No. I mean, okay. I've been, we can, I've been we so blessed with <laughs> so many players over yeah. between World Games, Princeton and Denver now, and, uh, and Hopkins when I was there. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's, I've just been so blessed. All right. I wouldn't even want to mention one. <laughs> okay. We'll, 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 we'll make an easier one for you. Who's the best to play both indoors and outdoors? Well, now you're going to get me in trouble with all my uh, with all my current guys. You know, I didn't uh, didn't have any up until I, I got here at the Denver seven years ago. But I'd certainly say from uh, you know the success, the continued success on all levels. Uh, you know, you'd have to say Mark Matthews at this point. You know, mm-hmm. he uh, his 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 continued success in the pro game indoor, his continued right. success in the pro game outdoor. Now, uh, the teams that he played on at Denver, we were very good, and he yeah. he got us to a Final Four. Certainly, um, you know, certainly uh, um, the, the the championship that we won in 2015 was a, was a culmination of uh, you know of the work that Mark and uh, um, Jeremy Noble certainly mm-hmm. um, you know and 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 Cam Flint. And, and then, you know, Tyler Pace and, and these guys now that just uh, have, have been phenomenal. But, um, you know, at this point, you know, I've really been really impressed with Mark, what Mark's done after college. Yeah. Uh, it, was a little, it was a little tough to get him motivated to uh, want to run six-minute miles uh, when, he was <laughs> yeah. in, when he was in college. But I'll tell you, he has done a great job of uh, staying current and staying in shape and uh, – you know, just really, really proud of what he's done. But there's just been so many that, of these guys, and we continue yeah. to get we continue to get great wins. Uh, you know, as they come in, and uh, you know, uh, Ethan Walker is coming in now. He's going to be a great one. So, there's just so many, so many of these guys that prove the point of what we've been talking about. Uh, that that have those box skills, but are translating it into uh, the American collegiate field game. Um, is John Grant? the best player that you didn't coach that's played both indoors and outdoors? Is he the best player you've seen, you think, to to just both sides of the border? Um, you know, I mean, uh, I didn't get a chance to see Barry play much indoors. Yeah. I've certainly seen Gary Gate play more outdoors than, than indoors. But but being more current with John and, and, and his, he's a little bit younger, uh, you know, in, in, in my eyes, so certainly the, the things that, that the man has accomplished uh, and continues to accomplish yeah. is, is, is beyond amazing, especially fighting through that real serious knee situation he had. You know, what he did with that Delaware program and, uh, you know, what he's done with every box. I mean, just talk about championships. The other day in the outdoor game was the first time he's been involved in an MLL championship game, of which this was his sixth. That he didn't win. I mean, the guy is not only is a great player, but he's such a winner. Yeah. You know, and 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 I think that's 
that's just a credit to uh, the longevity. You know, I played against John's dad. One of my best box days was we're playing in front of 17,007 people in Philadelphia. Yeah. And uh, back in those days, they were, they were pretty liberal with the substitution rules. So I'm heading, <laughs> yeah. I'm heading out the front door probably 10 yards early uh, as, as Merv Marshall, who was our goalie uh, then, uh, sees me breaking up the field, gets me the ball. And I thought I was way out in the front and I just kept hearing this pounding because we played on wood at the time, Yeah, yeah. you know, pounding coming behind me. And so, as I mentioned earlier, I wasn't a very good shooter. So I'm going for the top left-hand corner. Well, John Grant senior cross checks me as I'm shooting it and bad for me is that I got crushed and knocked to the ground. Good for me was that it altered my shot and it went in the lower left hand <laughs> corner. So, so I uh I I I felt physically bad from from him and yet yeah. uh, emotionally really happy from him. Oh, so, so good. It was, it was a pretty pretty cool moment. So you've talked about some of the greats you've had and you've mentioned uh, the the pipeline of Canadians coming down, but I don't think we can have this conversation without mentioning uh, the play of Westberg and what he did for your group in Denver. How special of a player was he? Well, Wes, you know, from day one when he came into our program, you know, we knew we had something, as you said, very special. And uh, from from the beginning, he was obviously a very good player, but. Um, the, the day of the day of real awakening for us was um, in his sophomore year. We were playing North Carolina at, in uh, Indianapolis of all places, and we got in the quarterfinals. And um, we got uh, down six to nothing in the first six minutes of the game, and it was a horror show. Anyway, we hung in there and, and kind of fought back to I think it was nine four at the end of halftime. And um, you know, this is a big pro stadium with a Colts mm-hmm. play and everything, so. Uh, uh, my son Trevor, who was the assistant at the time, and myself, and uh, and Coach Brown and Dylan Sheridan was my other assistant. You know, we as we came into halftime, we um, we were uh, standing out in the hallway trying to decide what we say to these guys, and kind of figured it all out. Walked in the locker room, and as we walked in the locker room, there's this young sophomore standing up on on a on a like a stool in the locker room, just cajoling and yelling at the team that had some great seniors on it. Mm-hmm. And he was like, we're not going to lose this game. Stick with the game plan. We are going to win today. And yeah. I, it was so weird because I kind of walked in and all I could say to the team was, just do what Wes told you to do. <laughs> and we, we went out there and uh, we went out there and, and, and won the game. Uh, really interestingly enough, in that game, um, Eric Law scored with – 13 seconds left as he did the other night to win the <laughs> yeah. MLL championship yeah. with Westberg at his side, you know. So That's crazy. Really strange. Uh, so, I mean, that was just the beginning. He, well, yeah. The beauty of Wes was that he would he would always play big in big games. He would um, score when we needed him to. But I think, you know, in his senior year and, uh, you know, he just uh, – um, he he just did an amazing thing, and that you know we had that kind of kind of zero transfer to our place, and mm-hmm. Wes was the big dog, you know, and uh, he accepted Connor with open arms, and and those two learned how to play together, and and then you know he basically carried us on his back to a national championship, which is a pretty cool thing, you know. Uh, as I just tweeted out the other day, you know, Wes is one of 
and you know, a world championship and fourteen, a national championship and NCAA lacrosse and fifteen yeah. and now you know, and, and now the MLL championship and that and before that, you know, well mixed into that was a Minto Cup and I would mm-hmm. assume an NLL championship's coming along the path someday soon too for him. So um, you know, he's just a winner and one of the greatest leaders and, and young men we've we've had at Denver and I've had in my career. It was uh, an incredible scene to watch uh, that NCAA finals two years ago, and just the the body of work that he did, um, the the behind the bat or the around the world goal he scored, the bouncer that was just a remarkable goal, and then and then the top corner snipe that he put in just solidified his legacy of one of the greatest players the NCAA has ever seen. But what do you think his greatest legacy as a young man is is going to be? Well, you know, I think people under underestimate the word winner, you know, mm. um, and because winner comes in so many fashions. Yes, a lot of a lot of us and a lot of us have been blessed to be part of winning teams. And when you are part of a winning team, you you always look back and say, well, that had a special feel, or we had special guys, or but but to me, with Wesley, he was always a kid who um, was more mature than his age. He got it. Uh, he never he never questioned the thing that that Matt Brown did on offense. I mean, we, he was really our best defensive midfielder when we needed him to do that as well. And I uh, played the wings and faceoffs, played midfield, played attack. And uh, but I think most of all, his, his, just the respect that he garnered from his teammates. It was mm-hmm. almost you know it was it was awe inspiring because yeah. you, you know it was almost like. You know, if they stop listening to me, then I knew I could just go to Wes and he'd get the job done. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm sure there were some Saturday nights also where he was uh, where he was a leader and had to, uh, you know, make sure <laughs> yeah, yeah. he was behaving. And yeah. uh, just, there was just never a fear. It was uh, almost, when we went into that overtime against, uh, you know, against Notre Dame, you just knew if, if he had the chance, Wesley was going to be the guy that scored the goal and, uh, they just uh, so I think the leader in so many different ways, just as a character guy, the locker room guy, as a person, you know, the warrior people uh, interviewed him once for this job he's got with them now, and they just couldn't believe this guy. And, uh, you know, a lot of credit goes to his parents and his upbringing, and, you know, and uh, just, just one of those special young men. You talk about... Um, the great players that you've had, and not just at Denver, but at Princeton and and, and your times elsewhere. But when you look at the body of work that Matt Brown has done since you've taken him on, is there any better lacrosse mind in the game right now? Well, it's funny, and I've got to be a, a, a little selfish here. First of all, I was blown away when I hired Matt because yeah. uh, the day I got hired, um, you know, part of my part of my uh, um, the, the, the things that I put to Princeton when I got hired was that I wanted to bring my son Trevor off as my first assistant mm-hmm. and associate head coach, and they agreed to that beforehand. And and then you know, so we accepted the job, and you know, I knew I knew Matt wanted to have the job. I didn't. The only I had met Matt Brown one other time, and that was when he was a freshman, and uh, Denver came out to Princeton to scrimmage us mm-hmm. in Princeton I and I had and Trevor was the assistant coach and I had the, the Denver team over my house for dinner 
And that's the only time I met Matt, except the next day when he scored five goals against us as a freshman. <laughs> you know, so yeah, yeah. that was my that was my uh, first first touch of Matt Brown and the special yeah. things he could do. Um, and then, so when when I hired Trevor, uh, he called me right away and he said, "Look, um, I think I, uh, Matt called me right away and he said, look, 'Look, I'm going to give you a write up on all the guys that we have left in our program.'" Yeah. And he had that to me the next day. And then, wow. he, then the next day he told me about all the recruits that we had, what they were like, what he thought of them. Uh, you know, when I came in, we had to clean the house a little bit. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, we had to do some things. And Matt was a young man. And uh, and he helped me through that. And then, of course, Trevor and Matt had played together on the Outlaws. And so, yeah. um, you know, it was it was one of those things that, that uh, you know, uh, was the right thing to do. So that was the first part. But then when I got there and I started listening to this guy, um, you know, I related it back to, uh, you know, if there's one, two in lacrosse, in college lacrosse of offensive coordinators, I've been blessed with both of them. And that's mm. that Matt Brown and David Metzbauer, who's now the, you know, uh, offensive coordinator at North Carolina, who just mm-hmm. was really instrumental in them winning their first championship in 30 years or whatever it's been 26 years and uh um and so the, the you know uh, Matt and Matthew were both very similar in that they were uh young men when I hired them 25 26 years old but you could tell in the first conversation that you had something special and you know I just uh you know I just said to Matt right away I said listen um a you're hired and b <laughs> I, I want you to run with this offensive thing the way you think it should be run. You know, yeah. I'll have my ideas, and and you know, I'll I'll pitch them to you. But this is going to be your show. And I think he, I think he um, liked that obviously, but he 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 just went and uh, and just did everything uh, you know that he could to finally put his ideas in, into the game both combining box and field, mm-hmm. what he knew from his playing days in both, and, and just things that he had thought about when he was a player and an assistant coach before I came out there. And uh, the impact he has, he's had on our program, I mean, people give me all the credit, but but quickly that credit to, from me goes right to Matt Brown. Mm-hmm. You know, he uh, his recruiting acumen, especially with the Canadian guys, his uh, his understanding of people, you know, mm-hmm. he uh, it's not just skill, you know, the, the kind of young men he's brought into us um, and then coaching them and, and getting everybody to believe, taking American downhill Dodgers and combining them with Canadian finishers. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not an easy task, you know, and, uh, you know, each and every day he comes up with a new idea. And then as we've been talking about this whole U.S. Box L.A. thing, uh, you know, is just an extension of, of how much he cares about the game and how important it is for us to and for him to uh, continue to spread the game both on the field and in the box. Are there any times where he draws up a play, whether it be a restart off a, an inbounds or an EMO or, or just any time where he draws up something and you, and you kind of scratch your head and, like, I, I never even thought of that? <laughs> yeah, like every day. Uh, you know, it was it was it was funny. Uh, you know, we run a uh, ourselves. You know, Matt and I, and uh, through LXTC Lacrosse, with my, that my son Trevor runs, and my nephew Seth, who's the head coach at Hofstra, we run what we call a a committed uh, camp during the summer, where 
Division One schools take all their committed guys and bring them together so they, they can coach them. Well, it's funny, right. this year, because of Matt's commitment with the Canadian under-19 games, um, John Orson, my defensive coordinator, and mm-hmm. I had a run to Denver committed team out at this camp at Hofstra, and, which meant that I had to run the offense, which, <laughs> you know, it, it, when you're the head guy and yeah. something doesn't work, you kind of go, what, what's wrong with you? That, that would never work. But yeah. then, you know, when the offense, when you're the offensive guy and the players don't put it to work the way it should be, then you start to understand. And, uh, and, uh, I told Matt, it gave me a much greater appreciation, especially because we have some Canadian kids that are coming up that were at this camp. So we used a little bit of a two-man game stuff, and I told him about this one innovation. I thought it was the greatest thing going, you know. Mm-hmm. I thought I had been, you know, really changed the world. He goes, oh, yeah, we have that in about four four years ago. <laughs> you know, so uh you know it's just uh every day the guy is just so far ahead of the thinking and it's it's funny that he and uh he and Metsy talk a lot and have become good friends through their relationship with me and their and their kind of ability to ignore me and and, and be successful and make me look good it's been uh, an incredible career for you um and your coaching legacy what's next for you well, you know, I just signed a seven-year contract, an extension yeah. with Denver. It's so, incredible, uh, by you know, the way. <laughs> I'm, I'm 64 years old, and so I figure if we get if we can get to 70, I've been blessed in so many ways. That's From incredible. my family, my health, uh, you know, the places I've been at. And so mm. if I can, you know, if all stays good, and if, if Barry will put up with me for six more <laughs> years, uh, you know, the, the plan is to at least coach until then. And then if I'm still feeling good, maybe just switch roles with Matt, you know, yeah. uh, who, who knows. But I think um, the other side of this is the whole um, kind of ambassador thing to uh, Western lacrosse now. You know, we're trying to get this game spread, uh, the field Absolutely. game spread throughout the country, trying to get, you know, a lot of these Division One big-time schools to, to start men's lacrosse. And then, you know, uh, you know, so I thought that was going to be the twofold thing, Denver and then the Western expansion here. But now I've uh, uh, been reattached to this box lacrosse bug, you know. And so, uh, yeah. you know, there's this, this Olympic things coming up. Um, you know, I'm so excited about the growth of this, this box thing. I, I could see myself uh, staying involved with that as that spreads, interestingly enough, from west to east in our mm-hmm. country, which is really bizarre when you think about, uh, you know, how, how field lacrosse has, has spread from east to west and now from north to south with the combination of uh, Canadian kids learning the field game, U.S. kids learning the box game. I just, I just, uh, you know, I'm just so excited about the whole thing becoming not only nationwide but worldwide and, and hope that uh, that could be part of the process. Absolutely. It's uh it's incredible to see the fact that at 64 that you still have the love for this game that I do and that so many of, of us do. It's it, it's such a pleasure and such a treat to hear the energy and love for the game in your voice. Coach, you are full of uh, incredible tales of yesterday and today. I appreciate you giving us some time and your insight. Um, it is quite an honor to have you on the show, so thank you so much, and I'm sure we'll talk again soon. All right, Teddy. That sounds great. I appreciate it. What an incredible honor to have the legendary coach coach bill tierney joining us here um he played his playing career at Cortland state um 
a decade later, he got his first coaching job at Rochester Institute of Technology, also known and better known as RIT. He became an assistant at John Hopkins, and then in 1988, he got his big break and spent nearly two decades at Princeton before moving to Denver. And as you heard him, he's been there since 2010, and he's just signed a seven-year deal, uh, which could keep him there into his 70s. And wouldn't that be a sight to see Coach Bill Tierney in his 70s alongside Matt Brown coaching this Denver Pioneers team. And who knows what awaits them in the future with their minds, along with Trevor Tierney and wrong with Dylan Sheridan and, and their whole staff and the pipeline of players that they have coming down from Canada and the amount of kids that just want to go and play there, not just because of Coach Tierney, but of Coach Brown as well because – Legends of the game they both are, and we probably have yet to see the best from Matt Brown. That'll about do it for us here this week on the OTCB podcast. Um, we're getting closer to some NLL stuff. Um, the draft is soon. Uh, the NLL Junior Tournament is in a couple weeks uh, back east in Ontario. The awards banquet, the Hall of Fame, uh, and who knows? Uh, maybe some interesting tidbits of news from the commissioner of the National Lacrosse League is down the pipeline. We don't really know. Um, I believe they're going to announce the hiring of a chief operating officer soon. Um, that news is in the works. So they have some things coming down. Of course, we're still going to try to hopefully have Mia Gordon on the show, who's their new lead reporter, and basically going to be running their production department for them out in Oakville at the track. So uh, we have some things to talk about. Um, we were going to hopefully have Jake Elliott on the show this week to talk some Minto, but um, we, we can't put anybody else on the show when we have the coach on. Um, so we'll try to get Jumbo on next week just to recap Minto. He's going to be off to Leduc for the President's Cup, so maybe we can double dip with him. Um, and there's tons of people that I have on my to-do list to talk to, so we'll get to as many as we can. Uh, enjoy the MSL finals. Enjoy the rest of the Minto WLA final starts. And again, the President's Cup kicks off in a few days once the Minto is done. Thank you to you. Thank you to Coach Tierney. And of course, my name is Teddy. You can find me on Twitter at Off the Crossbar or email me teddy.jenner at gmail.com. We'll talk to you in a week's time. Be excellent to each other. Peace.